0: The Cancer Mavericks, a history of survivorship, is made possible in part by Amgen Oncology, committed to the relentless pursuit of breakthroughs for cancer patients and their families.
1: The story goes like this. I started to notice that my left hand was becoming less dexterous. I couldn't move my fingers as quickly as my right hand and the second I got my keyboards set up in my dorm room, that lack of dexterity really showed itself because I couldn't arpeggiate with my left hand. That's when you run your fingers up and down the piano very quickly. The situation got worse and it got to a point where I couldn't grip a pen or a pencil anymore to write music. The headaches got much worse very, very quickly to the point where I couldn't think. My left hand became numb. My mom drove me to the hospital to get the MRI scan. We left the hospital, went to the local diner for some lunch, and just to date how old this story is, we got home. Remember answering machines? before cell phones the answering machine was blinking and we knew right away that it was the hospital and they said we want you to meet with our chief of neurosurgery as soon as possible he was an orthodox Jew Dr. Ehud Arbit. he took off Shabbos oh, I hate telling the story he took off Shabbos to meet us at his office like a match, And he showed us the scans. And he said we, we found fa- We found a mass in your brain. And then everything changed. At the time, I was 21. It was 1995, the summer before my senior year of college. I had studied music all my life. That's actually music I wrote, you're hearing right now. I had big dreams to go to Hollywood, to become a movie composer after graduating. But when my doctor told me I had brain cancer, all those plans fell apart. While I didn't know it then, on that very day, I became a cancer survivor. I joined the people who paved the way and gave birth to the cancer survivorship movement. I wouldn't be here without those mavericks who asked for more research, more support, more honest discussions about what doctors don't know and what patients do. From Offscript Media, my name is Matthew Zachary, and this is The Cancer Mavericks, a history of survivorship. Stories about the people rather than the disease. To start it off, we're going back in time. Back when there weren't a lot of survivors around, doctors didn't know much about cancer, and there was a lot of fear around it. So much so, that doctors sometimes wouldn't even tell patients they had cancer. It was like a boogeyman. It seems unbelievable today, not telling someone they have cancer. But at the time, that was common practice. Before chemotherapy really began in the 1960s, surgery was the main course of treatment. And it often didn't work. The big C was rarely talked about in public at all. Here's a rare example from 1945.
2: No, Molly, listen. Charlie's got something on his mind. He's upset and absent-minded. Scared to death about something. I think I know what it is.
1: What? Cancer. That's Fibber McGee and Molly, a popular radio show from the time doing a special show sponsored by the American Cancer Society. Just putting the word cancer on the radio, was a big deal. Most people didn't understand what type of disease cancer was. A lot of people thought the disease was contagious. In this clip, Fibber and Molly asked a doctor about it.
3: Cancer is a brutal, awful thing, of course, but it's just a disease like smallpox and tuberculosis. Get it in time and it can be cured. Look, Doc, what is cancer anyway? A germ disease? No, it's not a germ disease and it's not contagious. Cancer
1: is one of the oldest known diseases, and it's been the subject of more silly and stupid misconceptions than anything I know of. In a terrible twist, Marion Jordan, who played Molly, was diagnosed with cancer. She died in 1961. At the time of Fibber McGee and Molly, cancer had touched almost every family in some way, but no one knew enough about it. And the main organization, that could have been funding such research, what's known today as the American Cancer Society, had such a small budget, it barely existed. But some scientists were starting to investigate the disease. One of them was Sidney Farber, who would later become known as the father of chemotherapy. I was
3: brought up as a kid, literally worshiping Sidney Farber.
1: My mother thought he walked on water. That's Dr. David Nathan. He's the former president of the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Nathan knew Farber very well. He took his classes in med school and went on to work with him in the 1960s. But Farber wasn't a clinician like Nathan. He didn't interact with patients directly. Farber was a pathologist, someone who tells clinicians what happened to their patients. Now, Farber, he was, he was more of, a, in that sense, a
3: dreamer of What could be done for patients? But he was a highly intelligent dreamer. He had this brilliant idea that nobody else had.
1: In the 1940s, scientists discovered that nitrogen mustard, a chemical weapon used in the war, worked against the cancer of the lymph nodes called lymphoma. But the research was very early and doctors weren't sure exactly what the drugs did. Farber was convinced he could prove that cancer-destroying drugs worked. He was working at Boston Children's Hospital and looking for backers to fund his trials.
3: Right after the war, the Second World War, my uncle and his community of movie exhibitors began to look around to get rid of the money that they made during World War II. Everybody went to the movies in those days because they couldn't go anywhere else. And so they went to the neighborhood movies and these owners of neighborhood movie houses
1: made a fortune. Nathan says his uncle and his friends wanted to do something good with the money they'd made. So they started going around Boston looking for a cause to give the money to. One stop was the children's hospital.
3: They found Sidney Farber in the basement of the children's hospital in a musty, rotten laboratory with some room for rats with leukemia. And he told them that if they gave him money, he would build a building, first a clinic for children with cancer, specializing just in that, and that above it, he would build laboratories that would make drugs that would cure the leukemia. That was his vision. And he said he was going to devote his life to it.
1: There, in the basement of the hospital, they agreed to fund his research. Once he had his clinic, Farber soon had a big breakthrough when he tried his cancer treatment on children with leukemia. More than half of the group responded to the treatment, and a third of the group overall survived for about five months. They went into remission. They didn't stay in remission, but they went into remission, and that had not been seen. Barbara's results were promising. He published a report in the New England Journal of Medicine that caught the attention of Mary Lasker. Lasker wasn't a doctor or a scientist, but she would go on to be one of the most influential people in the world of cancer. Mary was a unique, modern businesswoman who worked in art galleries and ran her own dress pattern company. Her husband, Albert Lasker, a big time ad executive, was the man behind the ad campaign for such big brands as Sunmaid and Kleenex. And he even worked on ads for cigarette companies like Lucky Strike. Lucky
3: Strike is first again, first again with tobacco men. Promenade straight down the pike. It's time right now for a Lucky Strike.
1: In post-war America, a huge amount of medical progress was being made, from penicillin to the polio vaccine to cutting tuberculosis rates in half the public was seeing how modern medicine could transform their lives. The Laskers were paying attention too. Mary had seen several people whom she deeply cared about suffer from cancer, and she convinced her wealthy husband that medical research was a worthwhile cause. Albert sold his business in 1942, and the couple started the foundation to foster medical research for major diseases. The next year, Mary visited the offices of the American Society for the Control of Cancer. She was shocked to find out its annual budget was just $102,000, with barely any money going toward cancer research.
0: It had been started by doctors who were concerned about cancer and were primarily invested in cancer awareness. It was not supporting research.
1: That's Kirsten Gardner, professor of history at the University of Texas, San Antonio. Mary couldn't believe that cancer, the second leading cause of death in the United States, has such little funding. She persuaded a friend who worked at Reader's Digest to run a series of articles about cancer. Over the next few months, the magazine received $300,000 in donations earmarked for cancer research more than the American Society for the Control of Cancer's entire budget.
0: And the Laskers both came in and said, you know, this organization is just primed to to do more.
1: Albert got on the board of directors and replaced a lot of the members from the medical community with names from his Rolodex, movie executives, admin, pharmaceutical executives, and lawyers. The board changed the organization's name to the American Cancer Society and they started a public campaign to raise cancer awareness and bring in donations. Here's Lasker on the Edward R. Murrow Show, Person to Person. Uh, Mary, are you happy with what is being done in the whole area of financing medical research
2: in this country? Oh, I'm not a bit happy about it. The amount of money that's available for research is totally inadequate in the United States. You won't believe this. Less is spent on, on cancer research than we spend on chewing gum.
1: And then, Albert Lasker was diagnosed with colon cancer in 1951. He died just a year later. And Mary, well, she went into action. She fixed her eyes on Congress. She wanted real money, federal money. But she knew in order to get the big bucks, Congress would need to pass a bill. And to do that, she needed the public's buy-in. Her networks of power had expanded. But as a layperson, she needed a physician with vision, one who cared as much as she did. She needed Sydney Farber. Sydney Farber needed Mary, too, someone who could organize and advocate, someone who ran in the right circles, who had access to the kind of power and platforms their cause needed.
0: They both shared this belief that we need the nation to be invested in this, not just the people that are. Actors right now, but we need everyone to care about this. That if we can get more money in research, we are going to move the needle
1: on cancer. For Lasker and Farber, moving the needle meant creating what they called their cancer campaign. Here's David Nathan again.
3: Once you met Sidney Farber, you knew you'd met some. He had a magnetic personality and he and he had black hair and black coal like eyes. And with the white coat, which he liked to button in the German fashion, right under his chin, he really knew how to get people sort of cowed. And, and he, he had that sort of personality. That's why Mary Lasker liked him so much. She knew that she could count on him
1: to persuade people. Dr. Vincent DeVita was the director of the National Cancer Institute in the 1980s. She was the darling of Congress. She could get
3: anything she wanted. And she had the ability to see things that uh,
1: non-medical people often didn't see. Lasker and Farber knew exactly how to convince Congress to support cancer research. David Nathan.
3: They identified certain senators, particularly, and a couple of people in the House who were conservatives, but also had cancer in the family. And they, they found out who they were
1: and they would go after them. Kirsten Gardner says Mary Lasker was both strategic and determined.
0: She wanted whatever would be most impactful for getting to her goal. So if having a citizen tell the story, she would want the citizen to do it. If it was a doctor telling the story, the doctor, if it was a scientist, the scientist. And she saw herself as most important behind the scenes.
1: Mary started to hear that there was momentum in the cancer research world. Dr. DeVita was working at the National Cancer Institute at the time. He says in the 1960s, most types of cancer had limited success with treatment. Surgery was the go-to option. You didn't see long survivors. Uh, You saw people who got through surgery, and, uh, you know, that was a small fraction of the people who got cancer because we had really nothing that worked. DeVita and his team were experimenting with chemo options, but most doctors were still skeptical. Nobody believed you could cure cancer with drugs. Dr. DeVito was trying to see if different combinations of drugs could work to treat childhood leukemia and Hodgkin's disease, which is another type of blood cancer. The trick was finding a mix powerful enough to destroy the cancer cells without destroying the patient. We were pretty sure we were curing both childhood leukemia and Hodgkin's disease. Mary wanted to use this scientific discovery to support the argument for a national bill. One- that would give cancer research more funding than ever before. In December of 1969, Mary ran a full-page ad in the New York Times and the Washington Post. President
0: Nixon, you can cure cancer. It also makes reference to the Bicentennial in 1976, and that if we could send a man to the moon, we should be able to cure cancer by 1976. This ad cost her somewhere in the neighborhood of
1: $22,000. That's around $151,000 in today's money. Now, that ad really caught the public's attention. It compared the lives lost to cancer to those in Vietnam, 21 times more. It shamed President Nixon and Congress for spending so much on the moonshot and so little on America's most feared disease. In the ad... Mary quoted Sidney Farber and mentioned the promising discoveries that scientists like DeVita were beginning to make. She wrapped it up in one big punch. Our nation has the money on one hand and the skills on the other. The ad challenged the public by asking them to write to President Nixon, urging him to fund cancer research. Here's Mary Lasker herself talking about the ad and the impact it had on politicians.
2: Well, this absolutely shocked the people in the House because they never had ads before, and people were calling up from their districts and sending telegrams and this and that, and it caused quite a little commotion.
1: But some people looked at the ad, and their eyes caught one sentence in the small print at the bottom. Why don't we try to conquer cancer by America's 200th birthday? 1976 was just seven years away at the time. Kirsten Gardner.
0: Now, when it came out, even people who supported Mary Lasker scratched their heads a bit because no one really thought cancer could be cured in five years. This was a fantasy. But she used the advertising trick of getting people's attention and, and making this a topic that would be worthwhile. And it generates thousands of letters to the White House.
1: Soon after, senators floated a bill for what would become the National Cancer Act but it didn't look like it was going to go anywhere. Once again, Lasker goes big.
0: She says, I need to get the public to support this. So Lasker calls Epi Letter, who we know as Ann Landers.
1: Ann Landers was an advice columnist with 90 million readers across the country. I telephoned to her
2: and I told her about the trouble we were in. And I felt that unless we had a massive letter writing campaign directed to the senators, that we wouldn't get the bill out of committee.
1: Ann Landers published her column on April 20th, 1971. She urged every person reading her column to send a letter or a telegram to their senators writing, no one can do everything, but each of us can do something. Kirsten Gardner says the letters flooded the offices.
0: Senators are recording like I'm getting 50,000 letters. I'm getting 20,000 letters. I'm getting 60,000 letters. And some people are just furious with Lasker because all their offices were doing that week is opening the letters from citizens that are saying that this needs to be funded.
1: It worked. Mary's letter campaign put so much pressure on the Senate that the bill passed with just one vote against it. But the bill ran into trouble in the House, where Mary didn't have as much influence. The House brought in more independent scientists who were skeptical about Mary's promise to cure cancer. They didn't like some of the details in the bill. But eventually, they reached a compromise. Members of the Senate, members of the House, ladies and gentlemen,
3: we are here today for the purpose of signing the Cancer Act of 1971.
1: The National Cancer Act completely changed the possibilities for research. Here's Vincent DeVita again. The budget of the Cancer Institute went from 182 million to 1 billion in less than 10 years. And and all of a sudden, we had a ton of money. Davida and others knew all that money could make a real impact on cancer care and that this was just the first step. Mary Lasker.
2: It's just one part of a big, long road which we haven't come to the end of at all. We're just at the beginning of of a new era. But how long will it take to eliminate cancer as a threat to human life, I don't know. And of course, it's it's still a great big
1: struggle. Little did she know how right she was. Mary Lasker's work paved the way for Rose Kushner, a cancer maverick who changed the way breast cancer was treated.
4: She said, why are they doing this? Why on earth are doctors continuing to use this as the, the quote unquote standard of care when it's completely debilitating? And there's absolutely no evidence that they get better outcomes.
1: More after this break.
0: Additional support for the Cancer Mavericks, a history of survivorship, is made possible by the following partners. Bristol-Myers Squibb, Daiichi Senkyo, Merck, Gen, Takeda, Pharmacyclics, and AbbVie Company, and Janssen. Learn more about these supporters at CancerMavericks.com.
1: Welcome back to the Cancer Mavericks. I'm Matthew Zachary, and this is my baby, a project I've wanted to do for a very long time. I'm a cancer survivor, and I wanted to tell the story of the origins of the cancer survivorship movement. When doctors found a tumor in my head in 1995, I found plenty of experts. I just wasn't one of them. And I was exposed to a whole new language. And back in the 70s, the public was just starting to pick up a few words in that cancer language. Mastectomy was one of them. Producer Mary Rose Madden is going to take over from here with a story about another cancer maverick. One who challenged 80 years of medical practice and changed the way breast cancer was treated.
5: Just a few years after Nixon signed the National Cancer Act to make the war on cancer a real thing, he's gone.
6: I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. Vice President Ford will be sworn in as president at that hour in this office.
5: And then in 1974, Betty Ford, the new first lady, and Happy Rockefeller, the new second lady, announced they had breast cancer— Ford got emotional during a press conference when he mentioned his wife's mastectomy.
3: Personal note, if I might. I just returned from the hospital where I saw Betty as she came from the operating room. Dr. Lukash has assured me that she came through the operation all right.
5: But not much was said about the operation itself. The same year, Rose Kushner, a mom of three and a reporter for the Baltimore Sun, discovered a lump in her breast one Saturday night. It started um, in the bathtub. This is Rose on the show Panorama, an afternoon talk show in Washington, D.C. In
2: 1974, when I found the lump, I wasn't looking for anything. I just found it accidentally. She went to the doctor on
5: Monday... And then she did what any good reporter would do, started up her research on the mastectomy.
2: Well, first I went to the library to find out if it was medically necessary. Mm -hmm. And there was nothing in the public library.
5: At this point, millions of dollars from the National Cancer Act were rolling in for research. But it would take years before scientists fully understood what caused cancer and how best to treat it. And years before patients saw a difference in cancer treatments. Gant Kushner is Rose's oldest son. He remembers the early days of her diagnosis.
4: The first thing she learned was that it, it's really a, a crappy. It was a crappy system back then. Doctors didn't tell anybody anything. Doctors just said, "You're going to be fine, honey. Let me take care of you." That was medicine back then.
5: Rose started looking through the stacks at the National Institute of Health, and she started making calls and asking questions.
4: When she began to understand what, what she was up against. You know, she learned that the one-step procedure was what they did.
5: The one-step procedure is when doctors biopsy the tumor and decide right there, while in surgery, whether to remove the breast.
4: You went to sleep and you didn't know if you're going to wake up with one breast or two or none. And, uh, and she said, they're not doing that to me. They're going to open me up. They're going to find out what's wrong. And then I'm going to decide what they do to me.
5: She also learned that it was very possible the surgeons would remove not only the lump and the breast, but they'd perform what was called a radical mastectomy.
6: The idea was if you found the cancer, you should do a really large operation and encompass every possible cancer cell. And that's how you could cure patients.
5: That's Dr. Baron Lerner, an internist and professor
6: at New York University. So in the case of women and radical mastectomies, they remove not only the breast, but the lymph nodes under the arm on the side of the cancer and most dramatically both chest wall muscles on the side of the cancer, the pec major and the pec minor. So it was an enormously disfiguring operation.
5: Despite the effects of the surgery, the radical mastectomy had been the go-to treatment for breast cancer since the 1890s, when a surgeon in Baltimore named William Halstead started advocating for the procedure.
6: He was building on the understandings of cancer at the time, which was that cancer started in a small spot, either in your breast or somewhere else, and grew very slowly and didn't spread to the rest of the body until long afterwards.
5: They didn't know yet that cancer can circulate around the body, so the radical mastectomy became the standard of care.
6: Halstead trained a generation of surgeons, and they trained a generation of surgeons, and surgeons tend to be very reverential when it comes to their predecessors. So part of the reason that the Halstead radical was still being used when Rose Kushner got cancer in 1974 was that that's the way you treated breast cancer.
5: But Rose was digging through the material, and she uncovered more information that shocked her. In its 80 years of use, no one had studied Halstead's radical mastectomy except Halstead himself. Halsted had generated data on the mastectomy, but he had only used his own patients. There was no control group. It was a biased sample. Gant remembers his mother's disgust.
4: She said, what the f***? Pardon my French. She said, why are they doing this? Why on earth are doctors continuing to use this as the, the quote-unquote standard of care when it's completely debilitating and, and there's absolutely no evidence that they get better outcomes? She got angry. She got mad.
5: Baron Lerner says that by the 1960s, not every doctor agreed with the radical mastectomy. One was Barney Kreil, a surgeon at the Cleveland Clinic.
6: He was the first surgeon in the U.S. to sort of break ranks. He said, there's not good enough studies of this, and we need to study it.
5: Rose knew she didn't want a radical mastectomy, but even a mastectomy where surgeons remove just the breast in a one-step procedure didn't leave time for her to weigh her options and figure out the best course of treatment. The clock was ticking as she looked for a surgeon who would help her take an unusual treatment path at the time, a biopsy separate from any other treatment.
2: So I called 19 surgeons just through the yellow pages and they either hung up on me or got furious with me and said no patient was going to tell them how to do their business or I'm playing Russian roulette or this, that, the other. And finally, at five five on a Friday afternoon, and more than a week had elapsed by now, I called my internist and he said, well, why don't you call so-and-so after all? You know, you, your kids went to nursery school together. Maybe he'll humor you. And he did.
5: The doctor agreed in part because he wasn't convinced that Rose had cancer in the first place. But Rose wasn't taking any chances. She decided to make her surgeon sign a contract before she went under for the biopsy. Rose's son, Gant Kushner.
4: And she said, well, just in case, I want you to promise that you're not going to cut my breast off while I'm sleeping. And he said, Rose, I'm sure it's not cancer." And she said, "Just in case." I mean, I'm, she felt it necessary to make him sign something. She wasn't she wasn't going to just take him at his word.
5: The doctor followed the contract.
4: Uh, my father told me that when, when the doctor came out of the operating room after the surgery, after the biopsy, he he marched up to my dad and he said, "It's malignant. She has cancer. She's probably going to die." And he stomped out of the room. He was pissed off because nobody told doctors what to do back then.
5: Rose had a modified mastectomy later that year. When she recovered from the surgery, Rose, the journalist, started chasing down her story, looking to understand the cancer treatment she just narrowly avoided. She traveled abroad to meet the scientists, researchers, clinicians from around the world who no longer performed the radical mastectomy. Her first book, Breast Cancer, A Personal History and Investigative Report, was published in 1975. Two years later, the National Institute of Health put her on a panel that evaluated treatments for breast cancer.
4: I don't think there was anybody who didn't have an MD after their name who knew more about breast cancer.
5: Rose was tenacious, but doctors were furious. Many fired harsh criticism at her. Rose was a layperson challenging the status quo in the science community. That didn't go over well, to say the least. Here's Baron Lerner again.
6: The fact that a woman, like a patient, but a woman, would dare to question doctor's authority was unheard of.
5: Women were hearing more and more about breast cancer, which is good, of course, and that they were gaining knowledge. People no longer thought it was contagious, but breast cancer was still terrifying. A 1974 New York Times article reported that breast cancer was the most common cancer in American women, and a third of all diagnoses resulted in death. The vast majority of women were being treated with the One-Step Procedure and the Radical Mastectomy, an outdated surgery based on biased evidence. At least two scientists took notice. Remember Barney Kreil, the Cleveland surgeon who was the first one to question the Radical Mastectomy? He met a well-known Pittsburgh surgeon named Dr. Bernie Fisher at a cancer conference. Fisher had done research in the 60s that made him think that cancer spread through the bloodstream early on. Fisher's thinking was that if cancer cells spread, one couldn't rely on a radical mastectomy or any other surgery to catch all the cancer. Rose Kushner started going to those same cancer meetings as Kreil and Fisher. Again, here's Baron Lerner.
6: She would come to the meetings as a journalist and do her thing, sit in the back of the room, ask questions. The surgeons felt she was bothersome. But Fisher, a very smart guy interested in science, realized that what she was talking about made a lot of sense. And she was probably right.
5: Rose was an activist by this point, speaking out publicly and questioning leaders in the medical community.
6: And so Fisher and she developed a partnership, really. They bonded with each other and two very strong personalities. So they bickered and butted heads all the time but they both wanted scientific data to rule breast cancer.
5: At the time, surgeons routinely performed debilitating surgeries that were not evidence-based, and Fisher was deeply bothered by this. He wanted clean, unbiased data. Here's Fisher himself in 2004.
3: Clinical trials were not very popular in this country, and I have really knew little about them, but I became fascinated with the idea.
5: Randomized clinical trials were just starting to become standard practice. In a clinical trial, two groups received different treatments so the results can be compared directly. Patients join without knowing which treatment they'll receive. But Fisher had to find other surgeons to participate in his trials. Some surgeons thought the patients who weren't signed up to get a radical mastectomy were being given a death sentence. You can imagine it was hard— to get doctors and patients signed on to that. But he finally did. Fisher ran two trials with thousands of patients. It compared the radical mastectomy with two other procedures that were far less devastating. What Fisher found would shock doctors who had practiced the radical mastectomy for decades.
4: A new study of breast cancer released today says that removing a malignant lump is often as effective in treatment as removal of the whole breast.
5: By 1985, (laughs) Fisher's trials were complete. They took 10 years. The results were earth-shattering. He proved that there were no advantages to performing a radical mastectomy. Dr. Vincent DeVita knew Bernie Fisher well. He says when Fisher's results were published, many of his colleagues were outraged.
3: That was the bread and butter of breast surgeons. They were trained to do it. And when you do a simple mastectomy or a lumpectomy, it's a lot less procedure. You don't get paid as much for it.
5: Fisher held up a mirror to his colleagues, and it showed them that they were using faulty science and unjustified surgeries.
6: Well, I came under a great attack.
3: As soon as the trial was even talked about and when it was begun, certainly, I began to realize what science was really about. The people in the field just thought he was just a, a traitor. I went to meetings where I remember one across the street from Memorial Sloan Kettering, where there were about 500 doctors in the audience, most of them were surgeons. Where they, I, they, I never heard doctors call each other so many names uh, as in that particular audience.
5: Fisher's trial, which focused on a testable hypothesis, was better science, and it showed the egos of many in the science community. Doctors hadn't put the surgery to the necessary questions scientists were expected to. They had followed the status quo without question, and patients and survivors took notice. They started asking more and more questions about cancer, its causes, various treatments, possible side effects. They made documentaries, they wrote memoirs about their cancer experience, and got more coverage of cancer on the news. They opened up conversations about cancer from their perspective.
6: So the early 70s is really the birth of what we would now call patient activism. Uh, It built on a lot of other social movements, particularly things like the civil rights movement, anti-Vietnam War protests, but mostly second wave feminism.
5: Survivors were starting to talk about how their experience with cancer changed their bodies and their lives long after the treatment had ended. Here's Rose on a talk show in 1975.
2: You never know what goes on inside. You don't know what trauma has been left by the whole thing.
5: Rose was one of many people speaking up about their experience with cancer. But she also wanted to create and host a supportive network for survivors. Her son, Gant, remembers his mom's Breast Cancer Advisory Center— the grassroots organization rose built in the basement of their house.
4: She would sit on the phone all day long talking to women who had just found out or maybe had just found a lump and didn't even hadn't even called their doctors yet. But women who were afraid they might have cancer. And she spent the entire days, weeks, months sitting down there talking to women and, and giving them information and suggesting places to go to talk to doctors who actually know something. And she called them her ladies.
5: Rose had thousands of ladies, and eventually, her advisory center grew so much that she moved out of the basement and into an office.
4: Rose's national crusade became too successful. Calls from all over the world at 3 in the morning were wrecking her family life. A $30,000 grant from the Public Welfare Foundation came just in time, and day she opened an official office.
5: The center had a 24-hour hotline to answer questions about breast cancer symptoms and treatment options she was leading the way for a huge shift in the doctor-patient relationship. Rose remembered her own experience.
2: There's nobody to help you once you have done your breast self-examination. You have found a lump and you're sitting there holding it and you don't know what to do with it.
5: In the 70s, support groups and places like Rose's Breast Cancer Advisory Center were popping up around the country. Breast cancer treatment was improving every year and survivors needed more support.
2: The past 20 years of research especially the one since 1971 when Congress passed the National Cancer Act, have made dramatic changes in a woman's outlook when she has developed breast cancer. A diagnosis is no longer an automatic tombstone.
5: Doctors were figuring out the right kinds of chemotherapy to target different types of cancer. And more than ever, people were surviving. The war on cancer had made incredible progress since 1971. You didn't have to whisper the word cancer anymore, but as the numbers of cancer survivors grew, so did their concerns and questions.
1: That was producer Mary Rose Madden. This is just the beginning of The Cancer Mavericks. In our next episode... You'll hear more about the cancer mavericks who banded together over one weekend in New Mexico, kick-starting the next step in the cancer survivorship movement.
2: Well, we were just kooks. Who's gonna talk about cancer? Just go home and be quiet because we were doing such outrageous things. We were going outside the medical community, outside our doctors and, and talking to one another.
1: The Cancer Mavericks, a history of survivorship is a production of Offscript Media in partnership with Small Good Thing. The executive producer is Steve Licktime. Our senior producers are Susie Armitage, Mary Rose Madden, and Andrew McDowell. Our associate producers are Mariah Dennis and Mara Laser. And our production assistant is Sophia Curzius. Sound design and mixing is by David Schulman and our music is composed and performed by me, Matthew Zachary. For more information about this series, visit cancermavericks.com. That's cancermavericks.com.